Hebrews. I believe that's page 1009, 1010 on the blue hymnal. I should have that memorized by now. So this is it. This is chapter 13. This is the last few verses. And um, before I read these, um, I want to remind everyone that uh, after Labor Day on the 10th, we'll start our fall series in Ecclesiastes. And so we'll look forward to that. Um, next week, we'll um, have the privilege of having our very own Philip Maxwell preach to us. So I'm also looking forward to that as well. But as I read this, we're going to be focusing this morning on the benediction itself, which is verses 20 to 21, but I'm going to read 17 uh, to 25 so that we hear the word in its entirety. I've always thought it'd be interesting to do a series um, on these sort of final greetings that are always in these epistles and these letters and who are these people in these places. You maybe feel the same way. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to hear about much of that today, but that's something that maybe we can think about doing in a later time. It always interests me. Um, but there's a benediction here that we need to focus on, and that's what we're going to do with our time. So if you would, give your attention now to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Hebrews one last time for us in this series. Chapter 13, verses 17 to 25. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good. That you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, dear, uh, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy. Send your greetings, send you greetings, and grace be with all of you. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we uh, pray, not one last time, but certainly one last time in this wonderful book that you have given us, uh, that you would do a miracle, and by miracle, that you would soften and change hard hearts, that you would take our eyes and our ears and give us new ones so that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not And that as the word goes out this morning, such as a seed into good soil, that you would cause it to go into our hearts and to root deep and to grow a fruit that we might leave here changed people. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. In many ways, we are a culture of final words. At every age, we are looking for a word of truth to come our way, to tell us that everything is going to be okay. Perhaps many of you have started school this week or last, or even remember as a youth going to school, your mom or your dad taking you there, and as they were about to let you go into the building, they got down on one knee and they looked you in the eye and they said something like this, you're going to do great, you have nothing to worry about. I'll be here to pick you up at three. I love you. And of course, as parents, 
you think you're saying that to your kids, but you're really saying that to yourself. Right? Am I going to be okay? I will be okay. Or we have all had that coach of some form in our lives who just before the game would give us his final words, his benediction as we go and hit the field. Or maybe perhaps in, in a more serious moment in life, uh, the death of a loved one, a job loss, or even war in this country or world. We look to our friends or our leaders to give us a final word that might bring some clarity, might bring some hope or direction to life when it seems upside down. A great example of this recently has been uh, remembering Winston Churchill's famous We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech at the end of the Battle of France after the Battle of Dunkirk. Someone, anyone, tell me that things are going to be okay. Well, the Bible has its own form of final words to us. We call them a benediction. And the word benediction derives from two Latin words that come together that mean to speak well of. Or you could think of it plainly as a good word. The book of Hebrews, though, ends with one of the most famous benedictions in Scripture. But where Scripture, um, but where, where final words, excuse me, come to us from parents or from coaches or from our leaders at given times throughout history, benedictions come to us from God Himself as the final word over all final words. And the posture, if you will, as we do at the end of a service when we give that benediction, one of opening our hands is one of receiving that final word. It is to receive that final word as the last word on the, man, on the matter that everything is going to be okay. Not because now that we're Christians, nothing's going to happen to us, right? Y'all know that's not true. And certainly these Christians that this author was writing to knows that's not true. Not because you had a good week, right? You said your prayers, you didn't cuss as much, um, you know, and so therefore things are going to go well for you. It's not because of that. Rather, everything is going to be okay because God is for you. And he has gone above and beyond all that we deserve more than we deserve, to show us this, that we are loved and to secure for us a salvation in Jesus Christ that cannot be taken from you. This is what this final word is for you, that God is for you. I want to briefly look at that as we end this book in three ways there that are printed on your bulletin, that there is a need for a final word in our lives, what that final word should be, And then what that final word actually tells us. Okay? A need for a final word. What that final word should be. And what this final word should tell us. So let's look at that first one. We need a final word in our lives. And there's many reasons for this. But the one that I want to focus on. That I think is especially pertinent to this book. Is that we need this final word. Because we are not in control of our lives. As much as we think that we are. Let me say that again. We do not have the control over our lives that we think that we have. In fact, there is very little in our lives that we actually control if we were to sit down and really think about it. This has been a major theme throughout the book of Hebrews. This audience is no stranger to the brokenness of this world where things just don't work the way that they are supposed to work. You shouldn't have to worry about somebody breaking into your house. And stealing your stuff. You shouldn't have to worry about the prospect of persecution, of being murdered for just wanting to worship your God. 
She didn't have to worry about your kids getting beat up on the playground. There should never be a time, right, when I'm taking my daughter to soccer and I get hit by every single red light on healing and cause us to be late. That shouldn't happen. I blame sin on that. This world is broken and we all know this, but there are also heavier, weightier things in our lives that point to this. There's, there, there's the fact that, that we suffer the loss of jobs at times. Or even worse, none of us should have to experience burying a child. But those things happen in this world because it is broken. Because it doesn't work as it should. At the same time, there is this darkness in this world that is hard to even describe. And the only thing that we can say about it is that it's demonic. We don't really know how to talk about it. And we don't really have the answers for the things that it causes. And all this contributes to a world we live in each day where we try to act like we have some sense of control over what is going on in our lives. But we really don't. And it scares us. I can make no promise to myself or my family what is going to happen to us as we leave these doors today. But that's the point. The author can make no promises to his audience either as to what the brokenness and the darkness of this world will bring after they finish listening to this letter read to them. And that speaks to the fear that we talked about last week that controls our lives. But... What the author can speak to authoritatively is ultimately who has the final word over that brokenness and darkness. And that is the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it's in this context that benediction is spoken. It is the words of God saying, you need to know that while you are not in control of what is going on in your life, I am. I am. I am the God of peace, of shalom, of putting all things back to rights. I am the God of the living, not the dead. And whoever is in me will never experience death. That's what he tells us. And benediction reminds us of those things one last time. It puts our relationship to God and this world back in its proper place, back into this creator-creature relationship where you are dependent upon someone. And recognizing that relationship puts us back in our proper place, back from trying to control every single detail of our lives, back from trying to control the outcome of everything that happens to our children. Back from trying to control our marriages and our friendships. Back to even trying to control the joy and the happiness that we experience in this life. Back from all those places of control to a place of need. It is a posture of dependence. As a creature depends on his creator. And once we are back in that place, once we are back in that order of things, we are then open to receiving the good things of our creator. And that's what benediction is, friends. It is the receiving of a final word of life from God himself, a final word to creatures who experience the frustration and the fear of living in a world where they have very little control. 
Well, if that's true, what could possibly be said to speak into that fear and frustration of living in a world that we have very little control over? And this moves us to our second point. What that final word should be and what that final word should be to us is I am in control. And it's not you. It's not me. It's God himself. And nothing says that I am in control like the gospel of Jesus Christ. The author in really just two verses summarizes the entire letter of Hebrews for us, essentially. In verse 20, he begins, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the first mention, by the way, of resurrection in this book, although it is assumed on every single page. And not only does it tell us that if God has control over death itself, what does he not have control over? But there's more going on here that you need to see. That author isn't just leaving you with some wonderful theological statement to occupy our brain. It's not what he's doing. The author has expectations for you. His expectations for these words. The fact that he says, may the God of peace who brought back from the dead, our great Lord Jesus Christ. He is not wondering if God will or will not. What he is asking is, will you consider entering this story? We grow up, I'll illustrate it like this. We grow up thinking that having kids is about them completing our story, right? And we have these grand ideas that some, clearly it's before we have kids, of, you know, I can't wait till I get married and get to have these kids that are just going to be these wonderful accessories to my life. And and they're going to just, it's going to be excellent. Maybe you said that, maybe you didn't. But if you did say that as probably, well, as okay, as I said that. Um, let me, let me, that is wrong. As Darwin would say, that is from the pit of hell. (laughs) Having children is saying something completely different. Having children is saying, I will inhabit someone else's story. Ada and I have four stories to inhabit on a daily basis, but the trick is not trying to be in four places at once or try to make sure that these four of the stories turn out perfectly. The trick is if you will, is dying to our own story, laying it down, our own role as the main character, right? We don't like to do that. Our own role as the main character where four little girls just play a supporting role to lay that down and to enter into the lives and the stories of another. That's the challenge. But what a difference life is when I am giving up my story, as it were, to enter the lives of my girls instead of asking them to enter my story all the time. To put it another way, when our girls, and you can come to our house, and, and, and to, if you don't believe what I'm saying, to, to witness this, when our girls are constantly fighting for what they want and are co- completely consumed and focused on their own needs and their own wants instead of the needs of their sisters, our house truly is a war zone. It is, it is something, it, it is something of hell to not use that term lightly, right? It is a terrible place to be. But when they are not, when they are actually willing to lay down their needs and live to serve the needs of their sisters, right? when they begin to inhabit their sisters' stories, even if it's just for a second or two, 
It's heaven. That's the difference. The difference is the ability to lay down your story to inhabit someone else's story. And what the author is saying to us in this benediction is God wants you to inhabit his story. The one that he has bled for to give you. A story of resurrection, of making all things new. A story of ultimate control, a story of peace, the kind of peace that takes all that is frustrating and fearful in this world and makes it right again, that makes it work. But here's the catch. You've got to dethrone yourself, right? You have to be willing to put down your role as the main character. You have to be willing to put down your own story and enter into his And enter God's story. This is a story where Jesus, as the author tells us, that great shepherd is the main character. That's what he's leaving you with. It's a story where Jesus, that main character, doesn't ask anything of you before he lays his life down for you. That's the story. It's a story where Jesus, upon laying his life down for you, secures an eternal everlasting promise between him and God the Father that says nothing will ever separate us. It is a my blood seals that promise type of story. And that, my friends, is the gospel. What every final word to God's people should be. So here's the, this incredible story that makes all things new, right? That we don't deserve. And here's Jesus saying, take it. It's yours. Take it. My perfect blood for your mess and your self-centeredness and all that drives you to be the hero of your own story. Take it. And friends, it is a much better story. It's a story that we do not deserve. And so what would it look like as we leave this point for you to consider inhabiting that story that he gives you? To receive it. And one thing I would add to that is we consider that question for our own lives. What it would look like, what it would mean is that I would have to give up my control. But I think there's something underneath that. Especially as I think about my, my daughters and, and the way that they function, which is really a representation of how I function. The fear there is really not one of giving up my control. The fear is really trusting that God is good. That's the question. Well, as we leave the second point, what a final word should be, let us look at what a final word tells us. And that final word tells us that God is for us. I like to use, um, when I can, I like to use other stories in Scripture to illustrate stories in Scripture. And as I was thinking about this, as we get to the second, the last part of this benediction, there's really one story um, that speaks to this so clearly, and it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And some of us are familiar with that story. Jesus tells this parable to um, some Pharisees or, or to some folks who are asking, who is my neighbor? <clears throat> and so he goes into this story where there was this man traveling from Jerusalem, probably had been offering sacrifices to Jericho. He's on the Jericho road. And he comes across these robbers and these thieves, and they beat him within an inch of his life, and they take everything he has, and they leave him there for dead. 
And interesting enough, the story uh, documents that a priest and a Levite had been walking by, and both of them at different times passed by on the other side of the street, not wanting to, one, inconvenience themselves to the needs of this person. Um, but even righteously so, the priest, it would be wrong for him to even touch uh, this person um, according to their code. But a Samaritan comes along, and what does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan gives of all of his resources, gives of all of his time, right? throws the, 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 the dead, almost dead person up on his, uh, his ride, takes him to uh, an inn, uh, gives of his wine and oils uh, to, doc, to doctor up and to fix and to um, you know, restore the wounds of this person. But he doesn't stop there. He even, he even pays for all this. Right? He empties his pockets for this guy. Then he tells the, the person who's running the hotel, wherever they are, he says, look, whatever it costs, I will pay you on my return. Right? And, and the, the point of this story, at least the point that I want you to take away with at this point, is what does it mean for someone to be for you? And we might think of, you know, somebody left me a note, an encouraging note before I went to work today or school today. And, and, and it was something that said, you know, you're going to have a great day. I love you. And, and you feel like someone is for you. But the Bible, the Bible has something much bigger in mind here. That what it means for somebody to be for you is to mean that they are invested in restoring you to whole. That's what the Good Samaritan is about. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, Interesting enough, this is what this benediction leaves you with as well. That what the final word tells us is that God is for us. The second half of this benediction says that God will, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in the sight through Jesus Christ. And we think about that word equip and we think he's going he's gonna to give me some, some fancy learning maybe. Right, he's going to give me some, some skills, maybe some looks to draw a crowd, maybe, maybe a tongue to sort of speak his truth or, or just the hands to really help people. He's going to give me something to do something, equip me with things, right? It's, it's a little different than that. The word equip could actually be translated and is throughout scripture as mend, which is to fix, which is to make whole. The same word is used in Matthew 4.21 when Jesus comes up on James, the son of Zebedee, and John. And what are they doing? They are mending their nets. There's that word. Or you could say they are equipping their nets as fishermen. What they were doing was tying their nets back together. And if you've ever done any type of fishing where you take a net like that and throw it out over the water, you know that, that, it, that it, as it sinks down, it's going to pull in everything in its, that, that it surrounds. And after a time of use, pulling in fish, pulling in rocks, pulling in whatever it is that you might gather, you're bound to get tears in that net. And, then, and you know, one tear may be okay, but enough tears renders the net useless. And so what do you have to do? You have to mend them. You have to tie them back. Friends, that is what this benediction is telling us. That God is in the business of mending you. Because see, as it pertains to doing the will of God, which is right after that, the reality of us, the reality of our hearts, is that all of us are torn nets. In fact, we come into this world useless in that sense, unable to please him. That... That as I come into this world, a son of Adam, I am a net 
of a thousand tares. And what God's final word to you is this is great. Great. Because I'm a God who is in the business of taking every one of those tares and mending them back together again. Not so that you can go on with your life and with your agenda and with your plans, but so that you can begin to do what you were created to do. And that is bring glory to me. That's this final word. And that's what it is saying to these people that, it is, that this letter was written. And that's what it's saying to us. That he will equip or mend us in such a way that we will begin to live the way that we were created to live. And that is for God and not for ourselves. And I get that. You know, I, I say that. And that might, sound all, that, that might sound all that fun to you. And maybe even enticing. It might even leave you wondering, like, where's the cell here? <laughs> Why do I want to do, live a life that's glorifying to God? But I would argue that fun is not the aim here, but joy is. Joy is. It's a matter of what we were truly made for and why. It's a simple illustration, but, but it, it works. If you're to leave the parking lot today and on your way home or to lunch or whatever it is you're going to do, you realize your car needs gas, and so you need to pull over and get gas. And as you get out of the car, you begin to have a conversation with your car, as we often do. How, how are you doing? Um, you know what? I'm going to do something for you today that I just think you're going to like. I'm not going to put gasoline in your car. I'm going to put Hershey's syrup in, your, in here for you. You know why? Because I love Hershey's syrup. And it's great. And you're going to love it too, right? This is the dialogue you're having with your car. What do you think is going to happen if you do that? It's not going to work. The car is going to die. Why? Because that's not what the car was made for. It was not made to run on Hershey's syrup. And the bottom line here for this audience and for us is we were made for something else. Not for ourselves but to bring worship to our creator, God himself. And the most loving thing that he could do for us is to mend us in a way that we would begin to live our lives serving the creator to give him the glory. Augustine is still right when he says that you, God, have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. It's the God-honest truth. What this benediction tells us is a God who would go to all this trouble, right? So that you could have this rest, that you could have him, right? The God that would go to all these lengths to come down and, 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 and to suffer and to die. How could that God not be for you? Even in the difficult times when it doesn't seem like he is. The cross, friends, is that final word that shouts over us, reminding us that there are no links that he hasn't gone to to prove that you are loved and that he is for you. And when you begin to open yourself up to that reality, that the God of the Bible could be true, that he could honestly be for me, you make the first steps of laying down those torn nets, as it were. Your broken story. And you consider what it would look like to have Jesus to come in and replace those old nets with new ones. 
to have him weave his life-giving story of resurrection and love into a broken and dark story of death and self-centeredness. But you have to empty your hands. And that's always the catch. And that's what benediction does. It says, will you receive this? Open your hands. Empty your hands. Receive the final word that he is giving you. So we've seen the need for a final word. We've seen what that final word should be. And we've seen what that final word is. Let me leave us here um, this morning with uh, this story to get at just the wonderful picture of receiving that benediction leaves us with. And it's a picture of the gospel. Um, Many of us, or some of you, know that I grew up in East Tennessee, and we have a a little lake cabin um, up there that we visit. And um, I think one time, when I I think this is about the time when I was in college, I was about to graduate, we'd had a lot of rain, and there was some flooding going on. And so my brother, and at the time we had a dog named Forrest, my brother and Forrest went up to the lake to, um, to check on things and make sure the dock hadn't floated away. And uh, as he's telling me this story, he's tell, he called me the day after to tell me this. He's talking, I mean, he's describing, he's walking out onto the dock and the water is right up there. I mean, in, in just another inch, it's going to start flowing over the dock, but it's right up there and the current's pretty strong because there's been a lot of rain and, um, you know, but things were okay. And so as he turns to go back to the car, Forrest, and we named him Forrest, not because he looks like a forest, but because he thinks like Forrest, right? He, he isn't that smart of a dog. And there was a little buoy that we had out there in the water to kind of mark the shoreline. And as Brad walks back to the car, Forrest jumps into the water after that buoy. And he swims out there and he grabs onto that buoy with all that he's got. And then he starts to pedal his way back, Right. But what Forrest doesn't know is that at the bottom of that buoy, there's a, there's a rope and then there's a foot corkscrew like driver that's been twisted into the ground to lock that thing in place. So Forrest isn't going anywhere. And on any given day, Brad would probably just sort of let him do that and let him kind of tire himself out. But this was, this was different because the current is pushing against him as he's trying to bring this ball back to the dock and to get out over the shore. But as he keeps going and Brad's thinking, surely he's going to let go of the ball. He's going to let go of the ball. He's not. And the water starts to go over his nose and starts to begin to to breathe some of that in. And now he's sitting there wondering, okay, am I going to have to do something? I can't go back to mom and tell her, look, Forrest drowned. She would disown him. But surely he's going to let go of this thing. And, and, And what seconds creep into minutes, which seems like an eternity in the situation, when finally he realizes the dog ain't letting go. And so he's got to take his shoes off. And he's got to prepare to jump in after this dog who will not let go of this buoy. And so he does. And he jumps in the water, freezing cold. He goes over. He puts his arms around Forrest. And this was also an interesting detail. As he goes to take the dog, the dog lets go of the buoy and bites my brother. Forrest. Now you know. like He doesn't want to have anything to do with my brother and what is going on. And so even in the midst of that, he's dragging the dog to the shore and in one last effort as you know, with all the elements at play, throws the dog onto the beach 
And, you know, that was the end of the story. And he's telling me all this. And as I'm listening to him, I'm thinking, I can't believe Brad jumped in that cold water. He hates cold water. And that must have told me that, that really did tell me that Forrest must have been in trouble. But why do I tell you this? I tell you this because, like, seconds after our phone conversation, I put the phone down and I begin to realize, I need somebody to jump in after me. That's what the story of the gospel is. I need somebody to come in after me. You need someone to jump in after you. And even when they do, you don't want it. I don't want it. I need somebody to take their hands and pry my heart off of these God-forsaken things that I think are going to bring me joy and happiness. And I bite back. I don't want to have anything to do, do with it. But as I reflect on that story, this is exactly what the gospel is about. That I'm a person who needs, at the end of the day, somebody to jump in and to rescue me. And do you know what the final word of Hebrews is to you this morning? Somebody jumps in. Somebody jumps in. And it wasn't just someone, right? It was that great shepherd of the sheep who who exists for the care of his people. He is the one who jumps in. It is Jesus. And like a parent, he leaves his own story of glory and honor to take on our story of mess, to get into the elements, if you will, and inhabits another story for the sake of loving them. This is the final word of Hebrews to us. But do you know what the final word is on you this morning? Whether you believe this or not, this is your benediction, friends. You are worth someone jumping into for. You are worth being rescued. That is the gospel message here. You're worth someone jumping in after you. That is our good word. That is what we are left with. And there is no other message that I want to conflict with the message of Jesus and what he does for us and for his people by jumping in after us, rescuing us, bringing us to himself through his cross and his resurrection. There is no final word other than that final word. The question for us is, will we receive it? Could you receive it? Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have silly stories that happen in our life that aim to help us understand what it is, what it is that you have done. And, and, and it doesn't even scratch the surface. But Father, we truly are people in need of somebody to come in after us. You have done that. You have done that. And would, would, would we receive it? Would, would that final word be the final word that directs our entire lives, that shapes who we are, that shapes our questions, that shapes our joys in this life, and forevermore? We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.